dear listener, welcome to The Bible Teachers. Today's program is actually a follow-on from the program by the word of their testimony, which featured D. Casper. Now, his testimony is very powerful in relation to how God can change lives from crime to a life of peace and goodwill towards all men. It is a wonderful message that is a testament that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And we can read that text in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now, that word power there is very significant. It is the Greek word dunamis. And that word is actually uh, repeated there in that text because Paul uses it the first time in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 where it says that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, with dunamis, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the dunamis power of God is the power that can bring life to a dead body. And that is the power that is evident in the gospel. It is the latent power, and it actually says it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. And today, I think in the message that Dee's going to present to you, you will discover that there is indeed a lot of good news in the gospel. Now, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, In spite of ourselves, Christ has come to redeem fallen humanity. He came to die for us while we were yet ungodly, while we were yet sinners. And even if we read there in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now we know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I just want to read you a few texts out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 9 where it says... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then these very powerful words in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So such were some of us. And there will be sins there that everybody to a greater or lesser extent can relate to in that list of sins there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. But the encouraging words, and such were some of you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. And the gospel, dear listener, is good news. Now, verse 14 of the same chapter says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the power of the gospel is the power that can give life to a dead body. It is the power of the resurrection. Now, please join us as we listen to D. Casper, who will be presenting two messages. This is the first of a two-part series of messages about how to overcome the devil. This evening's message was intended to get your attention uh, but it's, it's good news, I promise. It's entitled, How to Overcome the Devil, and this will actually be part one. I'd ask for a raising of hands, but I can't see any of you, but I'm assuming that there's people out there. Um, just make noise every once in a while to kind of affirm my, my assumption that that's the case. 
Thank you, Noah. Okay, so our text for reflection that's going to be over the course of this weekend is Revelation chapter 12, verses 10, 11, and 12. And I have the text on the board. Not, I mean, you can't hide a Bible uh, in the, the clothing that these young people are wearing, and they're holding candles. So I'm going to provide the text on the screen for their benefit and maybe for yours as well. But this is Revelation 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. This is Calvary language that's used here, that fulcrum of the ages. And they, the saints, overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And we'll define these terms at the end of the message. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time." A life course altering event, a uni- universe altering event happened at Calvary, and it secured things in heaven. It secured the victory for the redeemed. But there's a time on earth that the enemy realizes he has, and it is short, but my is his fury great. Uh, but I praise God that the grace of God is greater. We're going to be covering this evening the power of the gospel and its ability to restore our identity in Christ and to overthrow Satan's attack on our identities. Now, throughout Scripture, Jesus and God, throughout the Old Testament and so on, frequently use lessons by contrast, sometimes using extremes to bring up a point that you won't soon forget. And this, tonight's message is going to be heavy, but I ask that you would stick with me in this, uh, because I'm taking a risk of potentially being misunderstood, but I believe I will be clear. But there's an experience that I've had in recent months of the most profound response to the gospel I've ever had in my personal ministry. The most profound, the most nearly biblical book of Acts response to the gospel I've ever seen. But the person's story is quite dramatic, and so uh, it's PC, I promise. But I just, I want you to understand that I'm making a point by contrast, and I want you to insert your story into theirs. Your struggle may be different than theirs, um, but just insert yours instead of theirs. But I'm of the mind that we are not doing our young people a favor by avoiding heart issues and difficult topics. Because the world is more than willing to educate them in these areas. But we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as parents, as grandparents, as teachers and mentors, should be taking time to instruct them in righteousness to prepare them for these things. And we need to face them head on and uplift Christ and His ability to transform the life. So my friend's story... Uh, is what I'll be sharing again this evening, which for many people in this room could be yours. Their manifestation of sin and difficulty in their life may be different than yours, but if you change the struggle and insert yours, I think you'll find a blessing from this message. I certainly have. I've actually been convicted by this person's response to the gospel and wondered why I, as a minister of the gospel, do not find myself responding in the same way that he did at times when I hear So he and I both pray that this story will inspire you and that you'll find the same answers that he's beginning to find and commit your life to providing those answers for the people around you. So, the church in the world defined him as a homosexual and an alcoholic. That's how he was defined by the people around him. Now, he did not grow up in our faith movement. He grew up in an evangelical circle. But he would prefer to be referred to as a brother that's struggling in the Lord. And here's why. 
He says, to attach someone to their sin hurts them. I would phrase it this way. To define someone by their sin hurts them. Why? Because it pushes them away from God instead of drawing them to Him. We should not define people by the things that ensnare them. It said in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, The Lord appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Jesus says in John chapter 12 and verse 32, That I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. If we lift up Christ, he can draw them to him. But if we define them by their sin, they'll be too ashamed to even try. And this is what happens to many people. Shame versus guilt. Shame is that I am something wrong. Guilt is that I did something wrong. God uses one, Satan uses the other. Satan defines you by your failures. God defines you by the success of his son. God uses guilt to remind us of our need of Jesus to draw us to Jesus. Shame gets you so filled with self-hatred and unworthiness that you can never possibly go to God because he won't accept me. You understand the difference? Many people are being treated with shame when they should be pointed to God who uses guilt to draw them to himself. You understand the difference? So when we use shame as punishment, it ends up pushing people farther away from God. It doesn't help. We think that'll teach them a lesson. It doesn't. So instead of being a person who struggles with same-sex attraction, you're a homosexual. Instead of this being someone that has an alcohol problem, you're an alcoholic. You understand? You can fill in the blank for any different sins. So, his experience with the everlasting gospel, I was preaching at a church, he has a relative, an adopted mother, Uh, she married his actual father, his biological mother ruined his life, made his life a living hell, literally, if there's anyone on the planet he hated, it was that woman, his biological mother, because of all of what she put him through. But his adoptive mother was a different story, she's a different story. She heard a message that I shared, along with some other messages at a church, got a hold of the messages and gave them to her son, who the world defines as a homosexual and an alcoholic. I refer to him as a brother in Christ who's struggling. Someone I love. So this man, he whips out this DVD and puts it in his DVD player. And what I shared is what I'll be sharing with you tomorrow to some degree of the sufferings of Christ from Gethsemane through the cross. And his response to this message was the most phenomenal and amazing I've ever heard. And it's even more phenomenal because people make assumptions about lifestyle habits that are, they view, worse than others. Which I find is interesting because the Spirit of Prophecy says that the most dangerous sin is not homosexuality or alcohol, it's pride. Because we don't recognize our need. This is why Jesus says that the tax collectors and the harlots are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And he's speaking to religious people. Because they recognize their brokenness. They're running to these things. It's obvious to everyone. It's the people that look like they have their lives together that are filled with pride that should be the most afraid. And so in this man's situation, he grew up in an environment, in an evangelical church, that was very much like this, that you, know, you have to ascend the ladder of holiness. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be growing in Christian character. I don't mean it in that way. I mean the way that people view you, that you're that holy guy in the church, and you just got to keep climbing the political ladder. He had a very rough experience with religion. But when this particular sermon was heard by him, it radically changed his life. Radically changed this man's life. And I'll explain his response here in a moment. But he says, it turned my worldview of religion to pieces. It tore it to pieces. 
that God is not hate. He thought that God was hate because the people of God treated him with hatred, at least the people that claimed to know him. Now, here's the context. His family sent him to a boot camp to fix him. This is a place that they had heard that if you send him here, this guy fixes wayward children and problem people. Well, the problem is this individual did not give him a healthy picture of God at all. What he had to say to him was, some fish you catch and some you just throw back. And he told me that I was the one that you throw back. And he said, I never forgot it. I chose to accept it. And I moved on to a life of rebellion. Someone defined him by his habits, by his lifestyle. And they showed him by their example that God wants nothing to do with him and there's no hope for him. So he never forgot it, chose to accept it, and moved to a life of rebellion. In the church, he was told that you're not good enough for the gospel because of the five sins that we say. Now, ours are okay, but yours are not. The gospel applies to us, but not to you. Again, this is a story of extremes. This is not a normal situation, but it does magnify issues that do exist in the church and Christendom in general, doesn't it? He says, the worst times of my life involved religious people. They wanted me dead and out of the picture, and these things plant such an impact in your life. When a kid has to deal with that abuse, it's not the gospel. And he's right, it's not the gospel. And they said, don't you dare to believe anything else. So I dealt with it. I walked away from God, and I knew I was walking away, and that I couldn't come back until I was good enough. I'm not going to be able to come to God until I'm good enough. He says it was heartbreaking to the child that loved God, but okay, you live your life and I'll live mine. God touched him as a child and told him that he was an adopted son of God. So he has an encounter with God, but then he has interactions with people that claim to know God and that people in the church think are holy, and it causes this dissonance, this confusion in his experience as a young person. And he said, I felt that if it's all about the do's and don'ts and I can't change, then all right, I'll go have some fun then. And it reminds me of a text in Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 12. God tells the children of Israel that you can come back. If you repent, you can come back. And they said, that is hopeless. So we'll walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. But there's good news in this man's story. When he heard this sermon, he said, I used to play that sermon on repeat nonstop. Literally, it's in a DVD player in his living room. As soon as the sermon ends, he hits rewind and hits it again. Now, not rewind, forgive me, I'm dating myself to some degree. He hits the back button and just keeps repeating this thing. There's even a repeat button, for goodness sakes, D. Uh, that's how awesome technology has gotten. So he says, nonstop, I'm not kidding. For days, this thing was on nonstop repeat in his house. He says, as long as I'm in this house, I want to hear that. I need to hear that. And he says, even when I was away from the house, I left it for my dogs to listen to. It was so strong that I couldn't turn it off. I had never heard acceptance like that in my life. And it made me feel equal with the human race. I've never felt that until then. I never visualized that I could be saved, and yet you put everyone in the same category. Your message put everyone in one scoop, that my sin of homosexuality and alcoholism was just as bad and just as responsible for the death of Jesus as someone else's sin of unforgiveness, someone else's sin of gossip, of bitterness, of politics in the church. 
My sin is just as offensive. It's just as bad. We're all in the same condition. The idea of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he didn't get that picture from the church. We're fine. You're the one with the problem. But hearing the true sufferings of Christ and his accountability for that leveled the playing field, he says. And he thought, I can accept that for myself. Very few people have been able to do that for me, to allow me to forgive myself. I can be so confused because of my religious upbringing, but when I go back to your message, it all makes sense. I've never been more sure of anything than about how that message spoke to me. I've never heard a response like this to the gospel. I have seen people weep and make heartfelt decisions for Jesus, but I've never seen something like this. And from someone that most people would say, they can't change, nothing's going to go on in their experience. But then he said the most profound thing I literally have ever heard in my life. It separated me from being gay. It radically changed my identity. The only time I've ever felt God, I saw that I don't have to see myself as a homosexual. And that's why I put it on repeat. No one is making me do it. My church made me define myself this way. The world made me define myself this way. But the gospel did not. The gospel gave me an alternative. Young people, only the cross can give us an idea of our identity and value and tell us who we really are. Only the cross can do that. He said, I always prayed for something that was personable, but as a gay man, I was barred from that. You can't reach out to God because of X, Y, and Z. So I lived a life of rebellion all the while knowing that I loved God. I just thought he hated me. Then he had a second encounter with the sufferings of Christ. You remember during the week of prayer when we had the message called, Do You Want to Be Made Well? How Jesus can resonate with the heartbreak and woundedness in our experience. So he found out that I was preaching near where he lived. And so he brings his drinking buddy with him to hear me preach that Sabbath. And I shared that message, and he could not believe the things that he heard about Jesus. He could not believe that Jesus could understand brokenness and woundedness and being abused by religious people, that Jesus really understood his situation. Now, did Jesus wrestle with same-sex attraction? No. But Jesus knew the heart wounds that this man was dealing with, and it changed his life. And I told the story in that message about my mom and I, how my mom uh, caused a lot of difficulty for my upbringing as well, that she's been married and divorced seven times. Now, thankfully, Jesus is number eight. Amen. Jesus is never late, and he kept pursuing this woman, and he won her heart. My mom loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. And at the age of 27, I was working here. She came up to pick me up. I didn't have a car then, and I don't remember what year it was, but I was 27, 2000, I don't even know, 13 maybe? And yeah, that sounds good. 2013, the spring. No, Thanksgiving break. I don't, yeah, Thanksgiving break in 2013. And maybe I was 28. I don't know. That doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is, I'm, I'm just rambling. I was a certain age, around 27 or 28. That's all that matters. Mom picked me up. She took me back to Atlanta. We had Thanksgiving break together. And God convicted me to tell her that I forgave her. Now, I had already forgiven my mother in my heart. But he convicted me that I needed to tell her that I forgave her. Part of the reason was so that she could learn to forgive herself. Because my mom wrestles with a ton of shame. 
A ton, you don't have seven marriages and divorces and madness and instability in your life and have it affect your kids and not have shame. It's just not possible until Jesus gets in the picture. And I communicated to her that these are the things that I've struggled with in my life as a direct result of the influences I had around you as a kid. She didn't have custody, and she would say, praise God for that, and so would I, and so would my dad. But I did have visitations with her, and the time I had was not good for me. It caused a lot of difficulty for me, influences that I was around. And I said, these are the things I've struggled with, and here's why, because of the time when I was with you, but I want you to know that I forgive you. And we cried together, and we prayed together, and in that moment, as a 27 or 28-year-old man, I gained a mom for the first time in my life, and a mother in Jesus. And we can pray together, we can talk about Jesus together, and everything is different in that sense. She started writing letters to everyone in her life that she had heard to make reconciliation and restitution. It radically changed her life. So my friend hears this. He obviously has a similar story to some degree. His was way worse than mine. And you know what he did? First of all, his jaw was on the floor when he heard this message about what Jesus went through. His drinking buddy, the same thing. They go home. You know what he does? He picks up the phone and he calls his mom, his biological mother. And he says, you better buckle your seatbelt. And he starts walking through the things that he's gone through in his life. But he says, but I want you to know that today I can forgive you. (laughs) He forgave his mom, the woman who made his life a living hell. And he said, if there's anybody on the planet that I hated with all of my guts, it was her. And God gave him the ability to forgive this woman. He's now able to have a meal with this woman on a regular basis. But then in the midst of a phone call, he confided to me that he was a homosexual. I knew this, and I don't brand him that way, but he said that I, this, is, this is something I wrestle with. And I said, brother, I just want you to know, I already knew that. And my love for you is no different now than it was before you told me. I still love you. Nothing changes. And God still loves you. Nothing changes. And his response, God convicted me to tell him, On behalf of all the abusive religion that's hurt you, I want to ask for your forgiveness. I said, brother, would you forgive us? We're sorry. The other end of the phone was silent. And then hysterical weeping. He completely lost control of his emotions. He sounded like he was drowning. He could not contain himself. What he had been looking for his whole life was that reconciliation with an option for God. He was already seeing that through hearing the gospel, but to hear that God was not responsible for these things that were done to him, and to hear an apology from someone who didn't hurt him has only been a blessing to him. Changed this guy's life. Wept uncontrollably. And this is what he said. He said, religion will rip you to shreds with no mercy, but treating pe- having people treat you with grace and acceptance where you truly feel it is so bizarre that it shocks you. You've learned to not trust in God because he hates you. Now, God has never hated him, but the way that he's been treated by religious people made him think that God hated him. But there was this beautiful couple that went to the church where his mom goes, or like godparents to him, that never referred to him as a homosexual, he said. They didn't identify me with my sin. They said, honey, I'm a sinner too. Now, does this accept, does this endorse what he's doing? Of course not. But you know what they're doing? They're separating what he's doing from who he is. They're treating him the way that God does. Is God happy with what he's doing? Of course not. And we're going to get to that. 
I told you, I may be prone to be misunderstood, but it gets better. He says, the religion of today won't allow us in. Any of the misfits, right? Some of us just feel like misfits in Christianity, that this is where we are philosophically, but when it comes to orthopraxically, the outgoing of things, we're just, we don't quite fit in yet. And he said, when I experienced rejection for myself in the church, it became real to me, because I thought Christians wouldn't be like that. I would hear my gay friends would have problems, but I thought, no, they can't be that bad. But he said, when I began to experience it, it became real to me. I was shunned by Christians. I was cursed by Christians. And I began to question my own experience. Am I an atheist? I don't see God in any of this, and I'm not experiencing it. And again, any sin can be used in this scenario here. When we define people by their sin, it erodes their ability not only to come to Christ, but to believe that Christ is coming for them. Are you with me? Jesus is coming back for all of us. He paid a price for all of us. There are people who will not be in that number when the saints go marching in, but that wasn't God's choice. That was theirs. You understand the difference? He says, I heavily researched religion to try to find answers, and I accepted the fact that the God thing wasn't real. With my lifestyle and the hatred in religion, I decided there was no God. I was sad for myself and for my family, but I didn't think that this was real. But look what happens. But your sermon left me speechless. It was the one that I didn't have an argument for. It put me in my place. This is what I was looking for. God is not in hate. What you preached, the true gospel of why he died, every single sinner. And he says, I have nothing to say but thank you. Had I not seen a true Christian in you, I would have no desire to go back to church. I can't stress enough how thankful I am for you. And then he said this, without realness in your preaching, people are going to walk away. Ellen White talked about theorizing people to death. It's a problem. We have to understand that the people that we're preaching to are not theological seminary students they're broken people. They're just like you. They're just like me. The people that I'm preaching to are broken. Now, does that mean that we avoid theology, that we avoid the uniqueness of our message? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that Christ better be at the center of the things that we're sharing because Christ has answers for their broken heart. And every one of the fundamental beliefs that we have as a church are painting individual pictures of the big picture of the heart of God. It's beautiful, and we shouldn't deprive our churches of this. Most of our church members can't defend our beliefs. We should be teaching them, but they better be centered in the cross. Amen? So, but he said, without realness in your preaching, people are going to walk away. We need to be real, and we need to be dealing with real issues that are killing our church members. Pornography is killing church members. Gender dysphoria and homosexuality are killing church members. Alcoholism, pain medication addiction social media addiction, whatever it may be. There are a multitude of woundedness and brokenness and issues in our churches that we're running from for whatever reason. We've actually separated mental and emotional health from the health message, which Ellen White never did. Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1 and Volume 2, Ministry of Healing, Right? There, she deals with the holistic issues that we deal with as a people. But for whatever reason, we run from some of these things like the plague. 
And so our members are being educated by the world in areas that we have godly answers for. We should deal with the whole person, amen? And that's what my friend is begging for. And you know what he said? He said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you, Dee, because you're a real person preaching real messages. This isn't about me. All I shared with him was the biblical narrative of the cross. That's all I did. God spoke to him, not me. Any one of you could have done the same thing and God would have spoken to him. It's a spiritual transaction. But he hasn't seen Christians like this. That's the problem. I'm very grateful and truly blessed that you've been so open to my story. I've been condemned and judged, but to be accepted is such a blessing to me. I've always been conditioned to believe that Christians hate me, and that doesn't go away easily, and to retrain my mind is difficult. I have to keep reminding myself of who I really am and what Christians really are. The hatred that comes from the church is sickening to me. The people that I sat next to in the gay bars see this as the Christian church. But there's always that 1% that got it right, and the world doesn't get to see them. Thankfully, he did. And they can see that in you, amen? Now, I'm not recommending you go to the gay bars to tell them this. You understand there's a big difference. But these people are in our day-to-day lives. They're no different than us. They're beautiful human beings that Jesus died for. They're no different. He says, there's no one, I've seen it all, who has accepted me for being me ever until you. I'm very shocked, and he said, I'm very proud of God at this moment. And again, some of you may be thinking, well, are you empowering this guy to remain where he is? This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. It not only offers acceptance, but it also offers accountability. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings both. If it's the gospel that Jesus was preaching and it's found in the book of Acts, it leads to both. And we should ask ourselves if we're preaching the right gospel if it doesn't lead to both. But this is what he said next. Which in turn leads me to responsibilities. If I'm ever made right with God, my sole purpose will be to help people like me. That's what he wants. A child that has been chosen by God can be a threat to manipulative religion. And I wish and pray that I can be an advocate for that someday. Religion can alter people's thinking to the point of suicide by not understanding God at all. The picture of God that we portray to our people, and particularly people that are hurting, directly affects their view of how approachable God is. And if we're giving them a picture that we want nothing to do with them, and in turn, God doesn't want anything to do with them, yeah, it leads to hopelessness. And hey, at least this way, my pain is over. Many people are dealing with hopelessness in our churches. He says, regarding my lifestyle, I can't turn that off. I've tried. But I also know that he's a God who raises people from the dead. And look at what he says next. We want to believe that it can change. Just speaking with a friend of mine this week whose brother wrestles the same sex attraction, and he's been saying the same thing. I wish I could change. I wish something could change. And my friend said that seeing people have victory makes me envious. I wish something could change. And he says that willpower will only get you so far. I overcame alcohol for two years until my husband died of cancer. He was married for five years. My husband died of cancer, and then I picked up a bottle of wine, and I've struggled ever since, he said. And now I'm faced with the fact that the gospel is out there, and now I need to be responsible. For the first time in my life, after hearing the true gospel, I'm coming to terms with the fact that if this is what you're going to do, you're going to have to take responsibility. Because so much of the responsibility fell on them. Are you understanding me? This is his view. 
The, the responsibility fell upon the people who showed him bad pictures of God. But he says, not anymore. And he says, oh, Lord, help me. This is more difficult than any life I've lived. And look at the conversation he had with God. I had control when you didn't like me. Him speaking to God. I had control when you didn't like me. But now I don't have control. You do because of the gospel that accepts me. Oh, boy, here comes responsibility. Chapter 2 is the responsibility stage. In general, we have two primary camps in the church. And I'm not getting political here today. And don't ask me what side I'm on. But there are conservatives and liberals, right? One generally, and these are general terms. One generally preaches accountability. The other generally preaches acceptance. But the true gospel preaches both. The true gospel leads to both. Want to hear a good example? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He says, God claimed me as an adopted child as a kid, but this is a whole different gospel than what I heard growing up. A gospel that accepts me as opposed to a gospel that rejects me and will mess my life up. And I love his honesty. I don't know how much I need to pump myself up or how much I need to rely upon God because I'm not a veteran Christian. But he recognizes that there's kind of two sides to this, right? There's a balanced picture, and he doesn't know how much of a percentage to put in either one. And many of us, if we're honest, are wrestling to find that same equilibrium. We don't know how much that we play, and we don't know how much that God plays, and we're just kind of wrestling in our experience. But he said, I'm going to have to figure it out because I don't know where I'm at. And if you leave it up to me, I'm going to do what I love. And I'm not, again, put yourself in their shoes with your battle. If you leave it up to me, I'm going to do what I love. And I'm struggling right now, and I'm not happy with myself. But listen to this. In my sin, I now no longer enjoy myself. By hearing that a different identity was available to them, you'll never believe it. And the power of the cross, they're not enjoying sin anymore. There's evidence that God is working in this individual's life to separate them from their former identity. He says, I'm disgusted by it. It's not doing it for me anyway. There's a difference in there. God, I have to give you the reins, and I know I don't want to. But what always stirred me away from going to God was the frustration of not being able to change what is right in God's eyes. Many people in this room are wrestling with this very thing. What really causes us to wrestle in having intimacy with God is the frustration of not being able to change what's wrong. We don't know how, we don't know what to do because we haven't dealt with practical Christianity. We haven't uplifted the message of Christ our righteousness, Christ our righteousness and explained the new covenant as clearly to our members as we could. So I'll explain this here in just a moment, but he says that being on your own will cause you to run so far. Many people are in this situation. There are two primary responses to a message that focuses on what God expects at the expense of how God enables us to do the things that he expects. And I'm going to repeat that. There are downsides to us preaching the things that God expects at the expense of how God has promised to enable us to do the things that he expects. And those two responses are this, basically, and this is kind of an overview. But the first is I'm a loser. I try to do the things that God said. After all, I've been told in church that if you love me, keep the commandments. I try to keep the commandments. I failed. I must not love God. There must be something wrong with me. I must be a loser. Or the second response is that God is not reasonable. 
Why would God ask me to do things that he knows good and well that I can't do? This is what happens when we don't prepare our members to walk in holy lives, to experience true sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform the life. We leave them in miserable Christian experiences. There's a church ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that has a ministerial department. They're getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults who have zero assurance of salvation. These are the parents and grandparents of our children, and they have zero assurance of salvation. They're getting an equally scary amount of phone calls from people who are sure that they're saved because of what they do. This is a problem. We don't seem to understand practical godliness, what the plan of salvation is meant to look like. And so in turn, we don't have assurance of salvation. We do not have the joy of the Lord. We're going to deal with that tomorrow. He says, this is so foreign to me, this idea of righteousness by faith, because growing up it was, it was you get it right or else. You do the deed, you walk the walk and make it pretty. Everything is different and rearranged now, he said. Notice, we're not demolishing Christendom. We're rearranging things in the order that God intended. You understand the difference? And he says it's phenomenal. It should be taught and expressed. And he said, people need to know this. And having been all over this country and doing ministry, I can tell you that what he's saying is true. I have to take responsibility, he says. And I don't want to. But my life with God is so much more important than that. My sin has become less interesting by the second. And what I thought would fulfill me had little effect now. Your message separated me from the sadness of my life. And I've never had that before. Your message got me happy about coming to God and about the way that he looked at me as a person. We talked about that earlier, didn't we? The picture that we give as religious people to the people who are struggling tells them what type of God is on the receiving end of their prayers. But what he heard in the true gospel got him excited about coming to God and the way that God looked at him as a person. And he said, in that message only, and shame on me for not walking that out every day. Shame on me, the preacher man, for not walking that out every day. He went to church a few weeks ago, and his favorite part of the church service at the church that he attends is they don't do a lot of talking during the prayer time. They have everyone that wants to come forward. They kneel, and then they have a time of silence. And this literally is his favorite thing that occurs throughout the week. When he can be alone with God and at the foot of the cross. And he said that week when he did that, that he wept uncontrollably during prayer time. I was at the foot of the cross, and I looked over to my side. Remember that nice couple I told you about, the godly couple that were like godparents to him? He says, I looked to my side, and I saw this man that I looked up to, and I thought, he belongs to the same foot of the cross that I do. He belongs to the same cross that I do. And he says, I want to live at the foot of the cross. That's where we all should live. We're no better than anyone else, and I don't want to be like that. And he, he got on to me. He says, D, I love you dearly, and I don't want to see you break my heart. Don't you dare do that. Don't you ever change, D. Don't you ever change and assume that you're better than anyone else that you're preaching to. Don't do that. He says, you can't do that. We have to live at the exact same spot at the foot of the cross. Counsel from my friend. 
I really and truly hope, and it's my desire, that I'm going to work with you in the future. I don't think that's out of the picture, he says, and I truly believe that I'll experience it. I have to start the process of dealing with my drinking. I want it out of the way. There are things I want to do for God. My sexuality, I want that out of the way because I have things that I want to do for God, and I'm tired of it. I feel that that's the direction my life is going to go, and i got to deal with these things. This is the most amazing response to the gospel that I've ever seen because I literally have said this much to this man about his lifestyle. I preached two sermons in his hearing, and the spirit of Jesus went crazy on this guy in encouraging him and accepting him and in calling him to an accountability that was reasonable and that has hope at the end of the road. The true sufferings of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, can transform any life. It does not discriminate. The people of God may discriminate, but the gospel of God does not. Amen? Revelation 12, verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So what is their testimony? That because of Christ's perfect life, sufferings, death, and resurrection, they now have a new identity. They are sons and daughters of God. Why don't they love their lives to the death? Because the life that Christ offered them was better than the life that they chose to leave behind. That's why they don't love their lives to the death. Because the lives that they were cherishing were going to lead to death. At the end of time, a generation of people will arise who through the power of Christ's blood and the testimony that he's making out of their lives will no longer love their lives to the death and this empowers them to overcome the devil and to awaken the world to the power of God's love to change the life. This, young people, is the message that will turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of God's love that's talked about in Christ's object lessons that's going to happen at the end of time. This is the message of Revelation 14 and Revelation 18 of awakening the world to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves you and who cares for you and who would long to hear from you. And there's a devil who's trying to deceive you that his ways lead to happiness. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. They lead to destruction. And the choice is yours. Satan uses coercion and manipulation in Revelation 13. God uses an invitation of love and a call to reason in Revelation 14. That's the appeal that's being made to you this evening. That's the appeal that the world needs to hear because that's a God that is reasonable. That's a God who's going to be feared and is going to cause people to want to give glory to Him. The everlasting gospel leads to this response and it also leads to the falling of Babylon in Revelation chapter 14. The everlasting gospel brings that thing to the ground. It burns that thing to the ground. People need it. And whenever it says that there were angels flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, he's not talking about literal angels. He's talking about these people in the front row. He's talking about these people in the front row. He's talking about all of you.
God needs ambassadors on behalf of Christ to tell the world, be reconciled to God. That's the message that God needs. That's the message that God is giving you today. And that's what I want to close and leave with you. Dear listener, I hope you enjoyed that message from D. Casper, where he talks about his friend and the struggles that his friend had with homosexuality and also with an addiction to alcohol. One of the beautiful things I liked out of that message is that D. brought out the difference between shame and guilt. Now, if you look at those two, he said that God works with guilt, but shame is something else and something that we often can feel or what we can make others feel or what others can make us feel in regards to something that we've done that was wrong. So the name and shame game is not something that God particularly is into. Now, there's a text in Romans chapter 3 in verse 19 where it talks about guilt, and I just want to share that with you. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become Guilty, that is accountable before God. So guilt engenders accountability before God, and God uses that accountability, that guilt, to bring us back to him. Now, quite often people will feel ashamed. They'll feel embarrassed about things they've done. I don't know about you, but for myself and my own life, there's sometimes when I reflect back on some of my past experiences and some of the things that I did when I misrepresented God to other people, when I wasn't even thinking about God, you know, when I was walking in the, in the flesh, doing my own thing and making decisions for myself, the way I treated other people, that I do feel ashamed. Some people I've been able to go and reconcile with and say, look, I'm sorry for the way I treated you. Other people, I don't even have the opportunity. I don't know where they are. Some of them may have even passed away. But I have felt shame at times. You know, and there's a writing there in the book called Acts of the Apostles where Alan White talks about the apostle Peter when he remembered the time that he denied Jesus Whenever he remembered that, he remembered that with shame, and he would then again repent of that sin. Not because he didn't believe he was forgiven, but his emotions told him that he was feeling very bad about that and very embarrassed because he loved the Lord so much at that stage. So we should never doubt that God forgives us when we have asked for forgiveness. But the naming and shaming is something that the devil would do. God uses guilt. He doesn't use shame in that way. But there's another thing that people sometimes can feel ashamed of. But we started this program today looking at the gospel where we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 where the apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, the dunamis power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. Now some people are actually embarrassed by the gospel, and we can actually read about that. The apostle Paul talks to Timothy Timothy is a young evangelist. Paul counsels him here. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So there's some people here who will not endure sound doctrine. Well, when they hear the gospel, they will not like it. They will be ashamed by the gospel, unlike the Apostle Paul who said he was not ashamed by the gospel. So some people would be embarrassed by the gospel. 
the good news is not all will be embarrassed by it. They will not be ashamed by it. Now, there is another text here that can tie in with that in regards to some of the things we used to do when we were estranged from Christ. And it says there in Romans chapter 6 and verse 20, For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit then did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? And I can say, uh, dear friends, as I look back on my life, there are things that I've done that I am ashamed of, and I do not want to do them again. And it says, for the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God, and you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So it says that you had fruit which you were ashamed of. Now, by being set free through Jesus Christ, you actually have fruit to holiness. Now, Dee also spoke about accountability and acceptance. In Jesus Christ, all of humanity has been accepted. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but the gospel actually brings that out. We believe that we are accepted by faith. We get to know God by faith. But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's not something that happens once we have believed. We we believe because God said it is so. And I want to go to a text found in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is one of my favorite books, favorite epistles in the Bible. Mind you, I like Galatians, I like Romans. Actually, I like them all. But there's certain elements that are brought out in different epistles that I really enjoy. Now, it says in verse 6, To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Now, what does that mean? It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, who is he being spoken of here? It is God the Father. And it says, by which he, that's God the Father, made us accepted in the beloved. Now, who's the beloved? Well, that is Jesus Christ, his son. So God, through his glory and his grace, he found a way to make us accepted or acceptable in the beloved. In Jesus Christ, you are accepted. When God looks at the human race at the moment, he is looking at the human race through the lens of his son. And Jesus Christ is perfect. Jesus Christ is the author of faith. He's the finisher of faith. He's the author of eternal salvation. And that includes you. Because if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you should really read the first 10 verses there of Ephesians chapter 1. It is just incredible how we have been blessed by God the Father in Jesus Christ. And look at that every time you hear that where it talks about in Christ, in him, in the beloved. God has made something beautiful out of fallen humanity in his son. Another thing that Dee brought out, other than the acceptance and the accountability, because we obviously don't now deny accountability, because accountability comes with the ability to choose and being a free moral agent, whether we can choose to hear the gospel or not, when we hear it, whether we reject the gospel or not. But in the book written by Paul, the second epistle is written to the Corinthians, and it's Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 5, and I'm going to read just a few verses there. I'm going to start in verse 14. And it says there, For the love of Christ compels us. The King James says, For the love of Christ constrains us, but compels us. It moves us and motivates us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, who's the one that died for all? It can only be Jesus Christ. Now, if one died for all, then what? If And then you've heard of the if scenario, if this happens, then that will happen. So cause and effect. So if I was to do this, then would you do that? 
If I was to open the door for you, would you walk through it? So the if and then scenario. So it says, if one died for all, and we know that Jesus Christ died for all, then all died. So you were crucified with Christ. Do you believe the gospel? Do you receive it that when Christ died, he died to death and he paid the price for our sins? You know, there's a text in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where it says that Christ was delivered up because of our offenses. In other words, he was delivered up to death because of our sins. And then it says that something very interesting. He was raised because of our justification. So we can stand before God just as if we've never sinned because of Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sins. He removed sins. He owns them. He bought them. So why would we live any more under them if we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior? So going back to Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says there, the love of God compels us, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. If one died for all, then all died. Now, if Christ died for you and you died with Christ, all died in Christ, what is the response that is, is required for us? If he loved us that much, if the love of Christ drives you, if it compels you. Verse 15 says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the transaction is Christ didn't come to live for himself. He came to live for us and die for us. And if that is what he did, he died for you, that we then as a response, as a love response to his love, we should no longer live for ourselves, but we should live for him who died for us and then rose again. Now, there's an interesting text that follows there. And if we understand the in Christ motif, we understand what Jesus Christ means to us, this will make a lot of sense to us. It says, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you always got to bear in mind what preceded that word. So, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The word flesh is sarx in Greek. It simply means fallen humanity, fallen human nature. The flesh, it can also mean carnal. We don't regard anyone anymore as carnal. We don't regard anyone more as fleshly. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we do not know him thus longer. Jesus took our humanity in his fallen condition. He took that fallen humanity for the purpose of reconciling us back to God. He was fully God and he became fully man. And in that single package, package in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, fallen humanity and divinity, which had been separated by sin, was brought together. So now, because of that, he took our humanity, lived a perfect life of obedience. He obliterated the power of sin in our flesh. And what he did is he took our humanity, all of us in him, executed us at the cross in his body. And then it says there in Ephesians chapter 2, that we who were dead in trespasses, we were made alive together by, by Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and makes us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, we're still here on earth. But by faith, we can receive the gospel and allow the gospel, the good news of our salvation, to be received by us by faith, to believe it, and then also expect that what we heard in the gospel to be exactly as God said it would be. So we are not to regard anybody else according to the flesh. That is an interesting statement. But then going on to verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if we are in Christ, what are we? We are a new creation. 
Now, there's two elements to the, the gospel. There is regeneration and there's recreation. Here we are talking about the instant principle of recreation when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And at that time when the new creation takes place, if you are in Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, the all things have become new. And then verse 18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing. The word impute there means reckoning, not reckoning their trespasses or their sins to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So D in his message there spoke about reconciliation, that we've been reconciled back to God through the death of his son. We have been. In Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled. We have been made accepted in the beloved. And dear listener, today I just want to encourage you, go to Jesus, receive him as Lord and Savior. We have acceptance in him. And the accountability aspect of our decision-making is also met in him. Therefore, as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so we can also walk in him, not because of our own strength, but because we've denied self and allowed the power of God through the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we will walk in him. I pray that you have been blessed by D. Casper's message. And when we meet next time, we look forward to sharing a second part, part two of that message that he presented not too long ago. God be with you. 